Hi, welcome back to another MD Queer podcast. I'm Bede from MD Queer. For those who this is the first episode of, MD Queer is a society for the University of Melbourne Health students with an interest in LGBTQI slash queer health issues in the medical profession. Today, I'm joined by Rose. Hi, I'm Rose. I'm from Teach the Teacher. We're a medical student group dedicated to sexual and reproductive health education, equity and advocacy. We provide sexual health education for student teachers as well as medical students and beyond. We'd like to start off by first acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. We would also like to acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. So before we go any further in this episode, we'd just like to talk about why we've decided to do this series together. So we decided to put together this series of speakers to shed light on what we think has been a huge gap in the medical education for not only students, but practitioners and allied health as well. We wanted to explore aspects of transgender and gender diverse health with the goal to help educate ourselves and fellow students to become better health professionals to better serve our community. In today's episode, we'll be discussing gender affirming hormone therapy in particular. We'd also just like to specify that this talk today is aimed at adults transitioning. But the Royal Children's Hospital has a gender clinic that's specific for trans and gender diverse children and has incredible resources and guidelines available for those who are seeking further information in paediatric patients in particular. And to help guide us through this topic, we have with us our guest endocrinologist, Dr. Ada Chung. So first off, we'd like to introduce Dr. Ada Chung. Um, who is a clinician scientist and holds a prestigious Australian Government National Health and Medical Research Council Fellowship and a Dame Kate Campbell Fellowship in the Department of Medicine at Austin Health with the University of Melbourne. She's also an endocrinologist in private practice and at Austin Health. She currently, currently leads a research group which aims to provide robust evidence to improve the health and well-being of trans, gender diverse and non-binary community. Furthermore, she's actively involved in the Endocrine Society of Australia and is on the policy committee for the Australian Professional Association for Trans Health and serves on the editorial board of the Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism, as well as the Therapeutic Advances in Endocrinology and Metabolism. Um, so just starting off with, can you tell us a little bit how you got to where you are today? Yeah, thanks very much, Bede and Rose, for inviting me to join you. Thank you so much um, for being here. So I, um, I am a hormone specialist and endocrinologist, and I work in trans health. And um, just like you guys, I when I went through medical school, I had never heard of the word trans or transgender. Mm. And so it started about five years ago. I was finishing off a PhD. I was already an endocrinologist. Yeah. And um, I met a colleague of mine, Jeffrey Zajac, and we were having lunch and he was telling me about how he was seeing more and more trans people um, in his clinic. But the problem was that our fellow endocrinologists um, were not willing to see them. And he said that the Austin Hospital, where I worked um, mm. five years ago, um, weren't very willing to allow him to bring trans people into our endocrine clinic. And um, although I didn't know much about trans health, like this really struck a chord with me because I thought, well, how can a doctor or a hospital decline to yeah. see a patient? Mm -hmm. um, 
you just can't do that. And so based on that, I said, well, I'm not doing anything. I'll help you. So <laughs> Jeff and I, um, well, Austin will let us see patients there. So we went across the road to his private rooms and, and, and saw tra and treated trans people there um, in sort of a bulk billing kind of capacity. Mm. And over time, we saw about a five-fold increase in trans people wow. seeking care. Um, and we just heard story after story of discrimination and outright discrimination. Not only were they struggling with uh, dysphoria about being trans or non-binary um, or gender diverse, but in addition to that, they had added barriers to getting care, like inability to find doctors or, or discrimination in all aspects of life. Mm. And so that sort of motivated me to do something more to help this community. And on top of that, there was no research to guide how best to treat people. So I knew the basics of hormone therapy, but I, there was no research to guide, well, if someone wants to feminize or masculinize, what's the best treatment and, and what dose should I use and how fast should I give it? Yeah. And so being a researcher myself and I was doing a PhD in testosterone and estrogen, I thought, well, I've actually got the research skills to answer some of these unanswered questions about how do I yeah. um, find better evidence to provide care. And so then I decided to do that. I finished off my PhD, which was actually in prostate cancer. And um, I thought, well, I'm going to try and, and, and um, focus on trans health. And so I started a trans health research group in about 2016 or 2017. And then it's just steadily grown from there. Um, and it's really whatever I do is driven by community need. Mm. So, you know, like we did a, one of our first surveys showed that um, of Australian uh, trans people from around the country yeah. showed that their biggest health issue was um, an inability to find doctors to provide care. And so um, we took this information to the Victorian government mm -hmm. and, um, you know, we realised, Jeff, Zajac and I realised that we, we, we couldn't do this on our own. We couldn't, we couldn't just see people in our clinic and provide quality care. So we thought we needed something multidisciplinary. We needed something public. Yeah. Um, we needed people to help us address mental health. We needed people to support people in speech therapy, um, people to support people in transitioning socially. And so we knew that we needed multidisciplinary care and, we, and the escalating numbers meant we couldn't continue to provide good quality, timely care. And so yeah. we took all of this data to the government, like we demonstrated in research publications and showed them that, you know, the community are struggling. They have poor health, poor mental health. We need better services and we need better training for doctors. And so the Victorian government have been great and they responded in 2018. Yeah. They announced the um, investment in of $3.4 million in trans healthcare in Victoria. Mm -hmm. And that sort of led now to development of a statewide training program in trans health and also a, um, two new multidisciplinary clinics that are based in Preston and in Ballarat to um, provide uh, care to the trans community. And that's still such a, a recent thing as well. Mm. And oh, definitely, yeah, the clinics only opened in December 2019. Yeah. And to even hear that for you, this has been really recent, only after you finished your PhD, 
in, you know, 2016 and that it's really just come so quickly. It has. Yeah. So it's come really quickly. Um, I think, you know, I've seen, there's still a lot of discrimination. There's mm. still a lot of criticism, but yeah. in the last four years, there's been a lot more understanding, a lot more acceptance socially. Yeah. Um, we still have a long, long way to go, but it's, um, sure. it's heading in the right direction. Yeah. And on that sort of note, you mentioned that there's been a lot of criticism. What are some of the challenges do you think that you faced within medicine itself? Mm -hmm. uh, because you've been such a vocal, you know, champion of, of transgender health and advocating for your patients and for community needs. How has that been for you? That, okay, so working in this space, I'd sort of like, I think it's one of the most rewarding areas of medicine to work in. And it's rewarding because the patients that I treat are usually used to, um, difficulty, difficulty accessing what they need. And so when you can provide care that they need, they are just incredibly, incredibly thankful. And the, um, the improvements in their well-being and their mental health and their overall functioning in society is just markedly improved. It's a real joy yeah. to work in this area. It's so rewarding. Like, of course, trans people come from all walks of life, so you're going to get, you know, all sorts of people with all sorts of backgrounds, and, and that's the same with everything in medicine. Yeah. Um, but the issue is that there's a whole lot of negativity as well, and it's not from the community. It's really from outsiders so for example when i published a guideline in the medical journal of australia yeah um describing the latest evidence to provide gender affirming hormone therapy we had lots of attacks from people on the um mja website mm. um, attacks from anonymous people mostly males mm. <laughs> but attacks directed at trans people, but also directed personally at me, mm. um, that I was delusional, I was crazy for treating trans people, it goes oh against gosh. the Bible, it goes against God, um, that it's like I'm chopping, if someone asks to chop their arm off, then a doctor doesn't go and do that. Um, so they, they, they likened treating transgender people to um, delusions. And they called me delusional. Um, and so I think it's disappointing that people have such strong views about transgender people. And I'm sure that the people who make these statements actually have never met a transgender person. Mm. Because I think if you actually talk to transgender people, they are just people. They are just like yeah. you and me. They yeah. are doctors, they are lawyers, they are nurses, they are electricians, they are office workers, they are plumbers. Like They come from all walks of life. And um, I think if you listen to people's stories, and I encourage you all to listen to mm. people's stories, um, you'll realise that it's not a choice and people are not delusional. They don't have other mental health conditions causing the gender dysphoria and it's something gender is something that's innate we're pretty sure that there's a biological basis and there's more and more scientific evidence pointing towards a biological basis 
Um, and it's a pity that people feel, uh, I think people who, um, people feel a lot of fear for what they don't know. Mm-hmm. And if people don't know something, they often, the first instance is to attack that. But, yeah. um, and, and it's really a personal thing. It's a medical um, and, and deciding whether to treat someone with hormone therapy is a medical decision that's a personal decision between the individual and their treating clinician. And it shouldn't be, yeah. you know, polarised or politicised in the media for any reason. Mm. Um, so that's been some of the challenges. It's really the, the politicising uh, being transgender, which, mm. which it shouldn't be. Yeah, the Australian especially. Um... Definitely. And the Australian, I think, conservative newspapers, News Corp newspapers in particular, mm. have been um, targeting attacks um, at transgender children, which is really, really disappointing and really um, not necessary. Mm. And really takes us back, I think, quite a few years, given all of this progress but seems to be a common theme, I think, in politicising bodies just in general, especially, you know, um, gender diverse, female bodies, Mm. um, which is a very sad thing. Yeah, and the sad thing is that actually accepting trans people doesn't cause any harm to anybody. Mm. It doesn't cause any harm to, um, yeah, anybody. It's really a it's a it's a it's a decision for that individual trans person. Mm. It's not about anybody else. Mm. Oh, and and their families and their loved ones. Yeah. Um, but yeah. And I think that really brings it back to your role as a doctor, as an advocate for someone's health, for someone's needs, um, which I think is maybe often forgotten, um, especially as you go through the system and there's a lot of, you know, bureaucracy and um, a lot of deadlines and has that been a difficult thing for you to manage as a clinician? Um, I think, I mean, there are challenges, but I have to say I'm lucky. I'm in a privileged position Mm. as a doctor, Mm. as a researcher and I feel like because I am in this privileged position, Mm. I have a responsibility to make sure the voices of people who don't have voice, like I, who don't have the opportunity to give, share their voice Mm. are heard. So um, I just feel like it's the right thing to do. Like I do what I do because I feel like it's the right thing to do that everybody in Australia should have a fair go Mm. and everybody in Australia should have basic health rights and the ability to access care and and live a life without barriers such as discrimination. Yeah. Um, And that definitely comes out in how you speak about, you know, what you do in your passion is very, very, very obvious and it's very inspiring as well. Well, thank you. I think um, I always try and make sure that I, uh, there's a, there's a, there's a phrase, um, Mm. nothing about us without us. And I think that's really important that we have trans voices speak. 
mm. encourage you to speak to trans people yeah. and, and interview them. Yeah. Um, and that's and going I do my to be best. one of our episodes too. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah. That's like a future plug. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, the community's behalf, but nothing can 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 match yeah. hearing yeah. the voice of the community themselves. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, lived experience needs. To yeah. Be heard, you know. Yeah. And so, so one of the projects that you've really taken on, um, we know that you recently started up um, your transgender and gender diverse clinic at the Austin. Could you tell us a little bit more about that, how it came to be? How's it been so far? Yeah, so that's, um, it's, a, it's the same clinic that I mentioned, the multidisciplinary clinic in mm. um, community, the Ballot, yeah. Ballarat and Preston. So we, you know, when Jeff and I started seeing, you know, a five-fold increase in trans people, we really knew that we needed multidisciplinary care. So we started lobbying Austin about five years ago. And so it was quite a lengthy process. We had mm. to get approval from the board yeah, the executive, which they did, and then the next step was to find funding, um, and the government responded, but not in the way that we expected. So, um, rather than being uh, hospital based, um, mm. it really needed to be community based because yeah. trans people having experienced a lot of discrimination in healthcare via mm. hospitals. Yeah. yeah, and so we made, and I think it was actually the right decision to make the clinic based at a community health centre. Mm. It's based at Pange and in Ballarat Community Health. Um, Pange is in Preston. It's very easy to access. There's good, um, doesn't have a hospital feel. It's much more of a community mm. clinic feel. There's excellent parking, which is free. There's some transport. Um, and, and the clinic, the first port of call is a peer navigator. So the first person someone who's accessing the service contacts is a transgender person. Mm. One of our peer navigators um, and our administration staff at Austin are trans individuals who are part of the community. And I think that goes a long way to make sure that trans people feel safe yeah. and affirmed and it's somewhere where they feel confident that they can go without any fear. Yeah. Um, so most of the care is provided actually by GPs. And, and as we have endocrinology and psychiatry backup. Mm. And that is so important, that multidisciplinary care. It's so multifaceted. Um, and just now speaking more to your role as an endocrinologist, um, if we could just transition now to talking about um, sort of the process of accessing gender affirming hormone therapy. Um, do you mind taking us through sort of the, the medical journey that a transgender or a gender diverse person who is looking to start gender yep. affirming hormone therapy, what they would go through? So, so um, it's really shifted in the last mm. five years that I've worked, been working in the space. So traditionally, yeah. people had to go through quite a lengthy uh, mental health assessment by a psychiatrist or a psychologist experienced in gender. Mm. And... Um, for many, that was a very positive experience. It allowed them to get a better understanding of um, you know, their experience and, and their own yeah. um, But for a lot of other people, they found it a barrier. They found yeah. it somewhat gatekeeping as the word to describe yeah. it. That, yeah. You know, their gender experience is their own experience. And if they didn't yeah. have any mental health morbidities, they 
often thought that it was um, not necessary mm. to have to prove their gender incongruence to mm. a health pro professional. And so it's really shifted over time to um, a more informed consent type of model. And, mm. and this is operated at Equinox um, yeah. Gender Health Service in Fitzroy, which are sort of the pioneers of this um, approach where GPs or primary care physicians provide the um, initial assessment, yeah. including the initial mental health review. And then if necessary, like if there's any other mental health morbidities that need stabilising or addressing, mm -hmm. or if there's any doubt about the individual's ability to provide informed consent and understand what they're getting themselves into, then they will secondarily refer to a mental health practitioner, but it's not mandated. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's incredible. Um, yeah. And so we've actually just done an audit of this process program, mm. which has been happening for two years now. Yeah. And it's been very, very positive. Um, at Equinox, 92% of people were able to go through the informed consent model, which mm -hmm. um, I think is an excellent way to provide care that's accessible, um, less utilisation of healthcare costs, um, mm. more timely, and yeah. and um, I think we need longer-term data to show long-term benefit, but so mm -hmm. far the preliminary findings have been positive. Mm. Um, so there's that informed consent approach, and um, I think it's very important that, you know, people are... Affirmed and that treating doctors, regardless of whatever area you work in, use, understand the trans experience and use the individual's name and their pronoun. Um, and when assessing for hormone therapy, work out what the individual's goals are. Because not every trans person wants hormone therapy and not every trans person needs hormone therapy. Some people do not need hormones to um, affirm their gender. Um, we also talk about fertility and because, yeah, there are irreversible effects of hormone therapy and infertility is one of those at times. Um, and we also, you know, make sure that people are healthy. It's an opportunity to ensure that preventative health is undertaken yeah. and that, you know, overall health is optimised um, before we embark on um, a decision for hormone therapy. Um, which is, you know, it's not taken lightly. People yeah. are assessed and, and we, we make sure that people fully understand um, what the pros and the cons and the potential effects based on the knowledge that we know at the moment. Mm. So that's sort of the process of how we start. Yeah. Because I think a lot of the public believe that it's a very quick process. You yeah. just go to the doctor, yeah. wham, bam, you've got your hormones. Right. And I think that sort of reinforces a lot of the fear and the misconceptions that, that um, right. a lot and of the community have. A lot of the, um, you know, newspaper reports, mm. you know, talked about dishing out hormones. But in Australia, that's just not the case. Mm. Um, you know, I think doctors on the whole are quite a conservative bunch. We're all <laughs> yeah. Yeah medico-legal ramifications yeah. and so a decision to start hormone therapy is never taken lightly by the doctor or the individual mm. um, because there are consequences and yeah. um, no one chooses to be transgender 
Um, and I think often people, it's been a long journey for individuals to reach a point where they've decided, okay, I want to start hormones. Mm. It's usually something that's been very carefully considered and thought out and assessed. Yeah. Most definitely. And just with um, the hormone aspect, is that one also, did the GPs also, because I have heard with the um, oversight of an endocrinologist, the GPs can also prescribe and monitor. Definitely. GPs can prescribe and monitor. Yeah. Um, and, and many, many, many GPs do. Yeah. Um, so it's a bit like... The hormone aspects is actually the, the easiest thing. It's like it's like treating <laughs> low hormones from other conditions like pituitary disease or menopause, mm. for example. And yeah. A lot of GPs are, are comfortable doing so. Um, so, you know, for the types of estrogens for feminizing hormone we use are the same as the ones that are available for menopause. Mm. And the types of testosterone that are available are the same as the ones that are available for male hypogonadism for other from other reasons. Mm. For, for a regular person coming in, would they first be prescribed hormones by their GP or would it be first by an endocrinologist? Um, usually it depends on the comfort of the GP and whether their GP yeah. is um, um, experienced in trans health. So um, because I work with a lot of GPs who are experienced in trans health, often yeah. they've already started. And, you know, some people may never see an endocrinologist and that's fine. Yeah. But, you know, with masculinizing hormone therapy, there is a restriction where in order to access testosterone on the pharmaceutical benefit scheme, the PBS, yep. they need to have a secondary consultation mm-hmm. with either an endocrinologist, a sexual health physician, mm-hmm. or a urologist or a pediatric endocrinologist. And so because of that, I see a lot of masculinizing hormone requests. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And a lot of people who are on masculinizing hormone therapy um, just because of that PBS restriction. Yeah. Okay. That restriction wasn't created for trans people. That restriction was created about five years ago to stop the overuse of testosterone in male aging. Okay. That's why I was about to ask, is it more dangerous than estrogen? But no, it's a different reason completely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. okay um, so... Just going on a bit to um, what gender-affirming hormone therapy can do to an individual yeah. who claims their sex characteristics to align with their gender identity. Yep. Do you mind just first explaining for, to everyone what primary and secondary sex characteristics are and then how hormone therapy can help change mainly the secondary sex characteristics? Yeah, so, yep. Um, if you think about what happens at puberty... Yeah. Um, that's sort of what secondary sex characteristics are. So for a um, for someone presumed female at birth, that would be you know breast development. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the goal of say feminizing hormone therapy is to feminize physical characteristics. Mm-hmm. And so it's not in someone who's already been through a male puberty, mm-hmm. testosterone is quite a dominant hormone. And so there's a lot of things that we can't reverse. Yeah. But the things that we can do by increasing someone's estrogen levels to a female reference range are we can induce breast growth. We change body fat distribution. So, you know, people, females typically have sort of a pear-shaped 
Mm. Uh, fat distribution, so more of a pear shape as opposed to an apple shape, fat distribution. Yeah. So there's increase in fat, decrease in muscle, marked softening of the skin, mm. uh, decrease in facial and body hair growth. Um, and there's also a reduction in libido and um, male sexual function, or erectile function. Mm. Um, so they're sort of the effects of feminising hormones. Um, feminising hormones don't change voice. So once mm. voice has been lowered by testosterone, we can't change mm. that. We yeah. can't change the appearance of the genitalia. We mm. can't change um, the Adam's apple or bony structure. Mm. Um, so... But there is there are things like voice training that can then help raise the pitch of the voice if that is something that causes dysphoria for people. Not not everybody is bothered by that. Um, testosterone therapy, on the other other hand, is quite powerful. So testosterone therapy will masculinize someone very readily. So if I raise someone's testosterone concentrations to the male reference range, which is typically 10 to 30 nanomoles per litre, mm. um, they will have lowering of their voice. So it's like going through puberty again. They will yeah. have oily skin. They may get acne. They get change in their fat and muscle distribution. So they get a marked increase in muscle, decrease in fat, roughening of the skin, mm. um, facial hair, body hair growth. They get um, clitoromegaly. Um, they get um, uh, an increase in their libido and they get cessation of their periods. Mm. Um, and, and often, you know, the testosterone therapy, once someone's been on it for some time, you actually, if you walk past someone on the street, um, on the outset, it's very difficult to tell whether they are a trans masculine or a trans man or a cisgender man. Yeah. And before you um, commence someone on um, hormone therapy or in the early stages, how do you prepare the patient and their expectations of, of what changes to expect and um, how do you go about that conversation? Yeah, that's a good question. So I start by assessing what that individual's goals are. Yeah. So, um, you know, someone may be presumed male at birth and want to yeah. fully feminise. Someone may be presumed um, female at birth and want to fully masculinise. But there are some people who um, identify as non-binary and may not yeah. want to fully masculinise or fully feminise and may desire an androgynous type appearance um, to match their identity. Yeah. Well, they may not desire hormones at all. So working out the individual goals is really important. Then mm. the second step is working out whether hormone therapy can meet those goals. Yeah. Um, and I, I always, you know, tell people that it's not a magic bullet. It's, you know, hormone therapy can do some things, but it, it can't change everything. Um, and the onset is slow. So I tell people that everyone responds differently. It's individualised. You can't look on the internet to say, oh, this person... Had this experience, and that's what I'm going to. That's what's going to happen to me. Um, yeah, it's really individualized, and and because there isn't a lot of evidence to guide the best way to provide therapy, um, mm. we really monitor people as they go and adjust people based on yeah. their individual needs and their individual goals. Yeah, I always make sure that people get mental health support. Okay. So even in the informed consent model, eighty percent of people sought mental health support mm. of their own bat. 
Yeah. yeah. And having a, I always encourage people to surround themselves with support. Um, so the more support, the better, because it's a tumultuous time. It's like going through puberty again, and puberty for anyone is not necessarily <laughs> a good process. Yeah. So, um, you know, they may not need a mental health professional, but they may find benefit from peer support mm. or family or, um, or friends. Um, yeah. Yeah. And just yeah. things that, and, and, and understanding that there are the things that feminizing hormone therapy doesn't change and, and the long-term impacts and potential side effects, including on infertility and long-term health effects. Definitely. Um, so you've already briefly touched on it, um, but can you just give us like a quick brief rundown on what like gender affirming hormone therapy is and how as a physician you monitor it? Yeah. So say for example, testosterone therapy to masculinize someone. Mm -hmm. Oh, there are two options. There's either transdermal gel, um, such as Testogel or Testovan or Androport, um, or there's that you put on once a day. <laughs> there's um, injections. And typically I use a long-acting injection that's given every three months. Okay. And um, so the injections are a, lot, a little bit easier because they're given every three months, but they're harder to adjust the dose. So someone who may desire partial masculinization, I tend to use transdermal therapy because it's easy to adjust. And yeah. I'll usually monitor their blood levels of testosterone, mm -hmm. aiming for testosterone concentrations in the male reference range. And I typically monitor trough testosterone levels for someone on injections. So that's the level of testosterone right before they're due for a testosterone shot. Mm -hmm. I'll also monitor for side effects like polycythemia. So I'll monitor their hemoglobin, their hematocrit. I'll monitor their, um, because we're a bit uncertain about the long-term effects of testosterone therapy and there's some data that testosterone therapy may increase heart attack risk in transgender men. I will monitor cardiovascular risk factors as a precaution. And I think that's a good thing for any anybody, yeah. regardless yeah. of whether you're on hormone therapy. So smoking, cessation, healthy diet, exercise, yeah. um, monitoring lipids and blood pressure, keeping an eye on weight. Yeah. Um, there's some of the things that I would recommend. And then encouraging regular screening. So people who have a cervix still need cervical screening. Mm -hmm. um, people who have breasts still need breast screening mm -hmm. and um, and you know staying engaged with people over time so that if we do have you know new research come out yeah you know, research is in its infancy we can update people and adjust therapy as needed when it comes to estrogen mm. um, I usually use oral or transdermal estrogen mm -hmm. um, there are other options available but those two are the ones that are approved by Therapeutic Goods Administration of Australia. Mm. Um, and often people will need anti-androgens or testosterone blockers as well. And they're drugs such as spironolactone or cyproterone acetate. Mm -hmm. And we usually need them together in order to lower testosterone to the female range of less than two and raise, raise um, estradiol concentrations. Oh up to the female reference range, somewhere between, you know, 250 to 600. We're not entirely certain. That's just the best guess. Yeah. Um, and we monitor um, how it goes, the clinical effects. Um, we monitor, we talk about the risk of blood clots 
the impact on fertility. We also monitor cardiovascular risk given the changes in fat that occur mm. and also preventative health as well. Mm. And so you sort of mentioned it's a bit of a best guess at the moment in terms of the range. Um, being involved in, in writing the Australian guidelines um, on transgender care, how did you and the other authors decide on what an appropriate tighter level for the hormones for monitoring was? Excellent was it based question. on European that's, research or? That's an excellent question and a topic of much debate. Mm. <laughs> um, there are some people who feel that you shouldn't monitor levels at all. Mm. So some of our reviewers said, you shouldn't recommend anything. You should mm -hmm. just monitor clinically. But personally, and some of my other co-authors found that, yes, that is a reasonable approach, but mm. it's hard to monitor clinically sometimes. Mm. Um, sometimes it's just difficult to tell. Um, and sometimes patients find it difficult to tell too. Mm. So, you know, monitoring levels is one additional piece of information not the only piece of information that's one yeah. of the pieces of information and what levels do we use well we don't really know we sort of base it <laughs> on you know what we do for in hypogonadism for conditions such as turner syndrome when we yeah. induce puberty we sort of go slow and steady to induce puberty like what would happen for a 11 year old girl you know estradiol levels slowly rise and then we aim to keep the estradiol levels in the female reference range. Mm. So looking at sort of population data mm. of um, cisgender women. Yeah. In premenopausal women, we looked at data that showed that the median estradiol, whilst, you know, estradiol varies across the menstrual cycle, the median, median estradiol concentration in large cohort was around 350 picomol per litre. Mm. Um, and then, so, okay, we had that sort of information, but, you know, it ranges from, you know, 150 up to 1,000. Mm -hmm. um, but so we looked, looked at the median, about 350, and then we looked at what, what, what's happening clinically. And so we, we audited trans people in our clinics yeah, and yeah. at Equinox and found that of about, we audited about 540 people um, de-identified and, and found, and we took people who only had been on estradiol therapy with standard treatment, with standard treatment for um, six months. Okay, so we, we took six months because we thought people would be on sort of reasonably established hormone therapy. And the median, and the median estradiol concentration was about 270 from memory, picomol per litre. So even, and that was on a median progonova dose or oral estradiol valerate dose of six milligrams a day, which is a reasonably high dose. And so even with this high dose, people were achieving, um, you know, concentrations of 270 or so. Um, and, and this compares to the American guidelines. The US Endocrine Society guidelines also have an approximate range, they suggest, yeah, of yeah. between, it, it equates to 360 picomol per litre to 700 picomol per litre. And I actually contacted the authors to say, well, how did you come up with that? And it was really a best guess, expert <laughs> opinion. And so I thought, well, I don't need to necessarily base it on the American guidelines, given that they have no data. Yeah, so yeah. I, I based the Australian data based on what was realistic to achieve. Because if you set the level too high, 
people are constantly trying to get more and more and more estrogen, um, which may, we don't know whether that's a bad thing, but theoretically there's a risk of thrombosis and, you know, first do no harm. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, um, it's the best guess and it may evolve over time. In fact, we've got a research project running at the moment, evaluating estradiol concentrations and well-being. Mm. and seeing um, what that data shows. But it's, it's a best guess at the moment. Yeah. And we always treat our patients individually. Mm. So this is a guideline. It's a guide. It's not a hard yeah. and fast rule. Yeah. And I think we'd like to reassure anyone that's listening as well that a lot of medicine happens to be best guess mm. um, because a lot of fields are emerging. Research is always changing what is best practice guidelines and what is the most optimal dose, et cetera. Um, because I think sometimes people forget that yeah. it's still a science that is being refined over time. That's right. And I think in anything in medicine, when we don't have evidence for the individual patient, yeah. it, knuck it knuckles down to having that frank, open discussion with your patient between yeah. the patient and their treating doctor about the pros and the cons, the risks, the benefits, and then making an informed decision together. Yeah. yeah. A shared decision-making process that's right for that individual. Yeah. And that as a doctor, maybe much of your role is to have that information of what is best practice at the moment to then help. Yeah. advocate for your patient yeah. in a and, and our knowledge of physiology mm. and what we know maybe not necessarily in the trans space but mm. from other areas yeah you know, in the menopausal hormone therapy or or the physiology of estradiol yeah yeah there's hope it generalizes to some extent yeah um so kind of on that topic with most drugs there's initial short-term side effects that disappear quite rapidly and then long-term side effects that never truly disappear being on the drug. Um, yeah. With hormone therapy, do you mind um, just breaking down some of the like short-term side effects that you explain to your patients will disappear and then some of the long-term side effects that aren't necessarily desirable that might not necessarily disappear? Yeah, so most of the side effects are long-term. Mm. So the, the, the only really short-term ones are um, mood variability, and that sort of settles down as people get used to it. But most of the other changes are long-term. Mm. Um, so things like thrombosis, yeah. um, polycythemia, mm. Um, they all persist. Um, for masculinizing hormone therapy, the oily skin and the acne sort of settles down, but the rest is all really long-term. And same with feminizing hormone therapy. The risks are all long-term. Okay. You've also on your website got an incredible graph, if anyone's interested, that I've stolen for our script. Um, <laughs> so also previously you mentioned that um, there are definitely some unknown risk factors that just because of the data we do not know about. That's right. Um, so there are a few diseases related to sex hormones. And I noticed in 2018, you, Thomas McFarlane and Professor Sajak were involved in a systemic review on sex hormone related tumors. And I know the results were inconclusive, but in your professional opinion, um, is it something you recommend your patients to still be aware of and just to keep screening? 
Oh, definitely. Um, I think sex hormones mediate so many things in the body. Mm. They mediate your well-being. They mediate cancers. They mediate neurological functioning. They mediate immune functioning. They mediate cardiovascular health. And so um, it's not unexpected that there could be long-term impacts on these bodily systems that we aren't aware of at the moment. Um, although the current data doesn't show an increased risk of, say, breast cancer with estradiol therapy, it's only a good preventative thing to screen for breast cancer as per the general population. And we should always take a harm minimisation approach yeah. and screen for um, conditions for which we know there's evidence. So trans women who have breasts, I recommend screening it through breast screen as I do cis women from the age of 50. Um, Tom was actually one of our MDRP students. So if any MD <laughs> students are interested in doing an MDRP project, I'm always open. <laughs> no, for sure. And I think um, there is definitely an emerging interest in, in medical students for this kind of research because, like you said, it's so emerging. Um, and just on the topic a little bit about the cancer risk. So for breast cancer, even um, this is more for the general listener, the Breast Screen website does now have a section um, in relation to trans women who do have breasts um, to recommend to get a breast screen, but obviously in consultation with your primary care provider, with your GP. Um, and yes, so, um, yeah. Victoria actually have the rainbow tick. Yeah. Oh, amazing. So, um, yeah, it's fantastic. And as an endocrinologist, um, so you know better than anyone that these hormones have such an impact on these bodily systems. Um, do you often find your patients would be held back from, from, starting hormones just based on the risks or do you think a lot of people accept the risk as reasonable and would still be willing to proceed is that something that you see often in your practice yeah that's a good question um usually by the time people have made the decision to start hormone therapy it's mm. been a long journey for them yeah that they've yeah. thought about for years and years and years yeah and they only start hormone therapy because of intense severe distress yeah and it's a balance between alleviating that intense severe distress that limits their everyday life yeah with these potential medical risks and almost everybody accepts mm. the medical risk mm. for the potential benefit on their quality of life and yeah. psychological function yeah in fact we had a um We've just published this case report of a transgender man with mm. breast cancer yeah. in um, Clinical Endocrinology, the journal. And um, he was on testosterone therapy and was diagnosed with breast cancer. Yeah. And his breast cancer was androgen receptor positive. And we don't know whether testosterone therapy may make his cancer grow. Mm. However, so we stopped the testosterone therapy when he was first diagnosed. Yeah. I thought that was the right thing to do. 
Yeah. Definitely. But he went on and had, you know, the usual breast cancer treatment, surgery, mastectomy. Mm-hmm. But the problem was chemo radio, chemo radiotherapy. He was so, he had such intense dysphoria off masculinizing hormone therapy that his mental health significantly deteriorated. And he told me that he was going to commit suicide if he didn't have gender affirming mm. hormone therapy. Mm. He didn't care about the potential. I said, well, we don't know whether this is going to worsen your risk of breast cancer recurrence or even make your breast cancer grow. Mm. But his mental health distress was so severe that he didn't care. And he was, um, he made an informed decision together with him, the oncologist, myself, his GP, that he was going to restart testosterone therapy and bear that potential risk. Mm. Um, and so usually the potential benefit on someone's psychological function far outweighs the medical risk. So I find very few people who would say that they wouldn't start hormonal therapy because of the medical risk. Mm. And as a doctor, I've got to support them in that yeah, yeah. and do my best to mitigate, mitigate those risks. And sort of paralleling that, um, I feel like a lot of people might ask if this person felt, you know, suicidal, they were in this significant mental health distress, how did you know that they had the capacity that they were um, competent to make a decision? Uh, yep, definitely. I think, um, oh, we also had his psychiatrist involved. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that helps a little. Yeah, so I think, like, you know, making sure that it's a decision that's well I think someone can show you that they understand if they can articulate back to you yeah their thought process yeah. and they can articulate back to you the benefits that they see from their perspective and the mm. risks that they see from their perspective and yeah. whether they understand that and you can make an assessment whether they can yeah. they understand that or not yeah. but if in doubt i think get secondary yeah assessment. yeah for sure. Especially with that, um, the risks. Yeah, that's right. Okay. And if okay. someone was suicidal, I would involve a psychiatrist. Mm. Most definitely. Mm. Because I think a lot of the time, just because a decision that seems strange to you mm. um, could still be, you know, the right decision or the preferred decision by your that patient. Patient, yeah. Like, I may not make the same decision, but for yeah. that person, they've thought about it long and hard and yeah. they have to make the right decision for themselves. Yeah, exactly. And their quality of life. Yeah. And so um, long as I know that, you know, it's an informed decision and mm. by doing so, I'm not harming them mm. to the best of my ability. Yeah. Um, mm. You know, they were breast cancer free at that point. Um, yeah. I think that, you know, it's, um, you know, it's, it's about open communication. Mm. And that's such an interesting case study as well to, to bring up and to now um, soon have published. Um, and on a, on a much lighter note <laughs> than all the risks long-term, you know, persisting, um, are there any protective factors of gender-affirming hormone therapy? What do you mean? Sorry. So, uh, for example, oh, sorry, B, you can. No, you don't. Oh, um, so for someone to um, commence, say, feminizing hormone therapy, would there be any improvements 
So medical students, we often learn are um, females tend to have a lower cardiovascular risk because of protective estrogen. Is there any kind of um, protective factors there? Yeah, we're not sure. We're not sure. Like, um, we have we are doing a research project at the moment looking at bone health, and yeah, trans men on testosterone therapy appear to have higher volumetric bone mineral density. Um, we're also, you know, there's all these hypotheses that you know, with COVID 19, you'll see that males' mortality is higher. Okay. And that's seen worldwide. I've looked at the Australian data. It's the same as the rest of the world. There's a higher mortality for males. Is there some sort of protective estrogen effects? Mm -hmm. Um, We're actually collaborating with some basic scientists who are looking at this question. Mm. You know, does immune function change with feminizing hormone therapy? Mm. Um, We're not sure. Maybe estradiol is protective. We're not sure. There is all those autoimmune conditions. Mm. Immune conditions, yeah, that's right. So I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So a bit of a big question mark at the moment. There's been some yeah. case reports that, you know, lupus is almost always, almost, not a female disease, systemic lupus, erythematosus. Yeah. And there's been, you know, not hard evidence, but there's case reports where people with lupus who started masculinizing hormone therapy have had an improvement in lupus. So, yeah, we don't, we, we're not sure. I can't make decisions based on case reports, but it's <laughs> yeah, yeah. the lowest yeah. evidence, but still interesting. But it's interesting, you know? Something oh. that needs further study. We'll know more in 10 years. Mm. <laughs> so, you've briefly mentioned that um, there can be decreases in fertility and changes in sexuality. Um, and by sexuality, I mean libido, not um, gender attraction, um, and people commencing hormone therapy. Um, how do you um, kind of address this with the patients? Or would it be... Yeah, I, yep, I talk about it, frankly, and I, I actually recommend fertility preservation before mm. starting hormonal therapy, so that may be sperm storage or, um, you know, freezing eggs or oocytes. i say very few people take it up, but it's something I discuss and, and um, make available to people. The reason people don't take it up are many, but cost is one thing. Yeah. Definitely. There because it's all private. Yeah. It's all private and there's costs yeah. associated with sperm storage and there's an annual cost involved as well. Yeah. And, um, you know, storing eggs or sites, it's, um, it can be very, you need to take high dose feminizing hormones to induce ovulation, mm. to stimulate ovulation. And that can be very dysphoria inducing for a transgender man. Mm. Definitely. I actually didn't even think about that. Um, definitely an area that needs to be addressed a yeah. bit more. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that one of the big barriers is cost. Do you think in the journey of a trans or a gender diverse person that cost is a big factor just at many levels? Definitely. Um, um, so, you know, public wait lists mm. or say a public gender clinic like at Monash yeah. are very, very long. Yeah. And so many people 
go privately and there's out-of-pocket costs for paying to see a private clinician. Yeah. Um, there's, there's costs associated with, you know, hair removal, like laser mm -hmm. hair removal or speech therapy. Mm -hmm. um, there's costs associated with medication, purchasing medication. Mm -hmm. um, surgery is 100% in the private sector and there are huge costs, out-of-pocket costs for surgery. And so there are significant barriers to getting care that they need. And, oh, sorry. Um, going even more broadly now, um, these are really not topics or considerations that I think students at our university at Melbourne Uni really think about very much or, or have discussed in a, in a public way um, as part of our curriculum. It's, it's really quite noticeably absent. Um, I know that you're involved in the curriculum design for 2022, is that, is that correct? Not actually. Oh, okay. I've mentioned um, many times to various people at the mm. university in various areas about yeah. the need for trans health. Yeah. In that when we surveyed doctors, 96% of them had not been taught about trans health in medical school. Mm. And because of the increasing visibility of trans people in the community, we estimate that about 0.6 to 1% of the population identify as trans or gender diverse, yeah. non-binary, and many of those people will need affirmative care. Mm. Um, and so I think it's a really important area to address. Um, but there are a lot of important areas in medicine. And, you know, talk to people who design medical courses because yeah. there's a lot of people so vying for, yeah. to put their area as an area of importance. Yeah. Um, so it's a, it's a balance. I'm hoping that it will change with time. And I think sometimes it comes best from students. Mm. Students telling the medical school, this is what we want. Yeah. So far, like all the trans talk, health talks that I've been involved in have been extra things like what you're doing today. Yeah. Or at the MD conference. You know, it's not something that's in the curriculum. It's something that people who are interested in will go and seek. But it's not for everybody. It's not delivered to everybody. Yeah. Which I think it's really important that we do. Yeah. Because doctors are going to be treating trans people in every area, in radiology, in emergency, as a public health physician, mm -hmm. as a oncologist, as a gastroenterologist. There are trans people who get health issues. As a surgeon, a general surgeon, you'll yeah. be seeing trans people everywhere. Yeah. And like 0.6 to 1% does kind of sound a little bit small, but it's actually quite large of a population that physicians will say. Um, and we cover topics that are yeah. less- Very obscure. <laughs> yeah, that like cover a lot less of the population, which is so crazy to me. Yeah, and I think, you know, people some often say it's as common as people with red hair. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing against red hair. Yeah. yeah. It'd be another kind of interesting thing that I was thinking about that we don't kind of touch up on medical school that's kind of off topic is the cost of some of these things. Because um, mm. we had a brief look at the cost of the surgery 
of some of the surgeries and they're upwards of $15,000. Oh yeah, they are. Um, and we never get told anything. We don't really get taught anything about the finances of medicine mm. and the impact it would have on a patient. Huge. They often, people often save up for years to access surgery and people and often that's just not feasible for people yeah um, when we did uh, when we did a survey we found that um, for example say genital surgery for trans women 18 percent had had it but 62 percent desired it um, so there's this gap um, yeah and cost is a major barrier and not just cost but also availability of surgeons oh, in Victoria, we have one or two maybe surgeons who do it and they just don't have like surgeons aren't interested in training in this space despite it being a big market mm. um, an emerging market mm. so we need surgeons who are interested in training in this space and yeah. um, the more surgeons that we have those costs will come down mm. do you yeah. find many of your patients um, seek overseas care or overseas treatments and surgeries mm. Um, some do. Um, sometimes people will go overseas because they just feel that it's better, which it's not necessarily. Mm. It's not actually because when they run into complications, it's a major issue. Yeah. Our surgeon in Victoria, surgeons in Victoria are excellent. Mm. Um, we don't have all sorts of surgery available in Victoria, for example. We don't have masculinising phalloplasty. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it's um, some do go overseas, but we do have very good surgeons in Victoria. Yeah. yeah. Hopefully, it will eventually be a requirement. Oh, I guess, yeah. No, hopefully it will be eventually a requirement in general surgery training to have some idea. So it's yeah. such an important aspect. Um, so that kind of is the majority of the stuff we really wanted to cover in this talk. Um, thank you so much. Is there anything you. That, you, um, that we didn't touch on that you think is important? Mm. I think the main message is you don't need to know the ins and outs of surgery. You don't need to know the ins and outs of hormones. Yeah. You just need to listen to your patients and have an open mind. Yeah. And if they say, I'm, I use this name, use that name. If they want you to refer to them with this pronoun, use that pronoun. And that will go a long, long way. Use someone's name and their pronoun and just be respectful. That's all you need to remember. Yeah. You don't need to be an expert. They don't need you to be an expert. They just need you to care. Yeah. And that's so applicable, I think, across all workplaces, all schools, you know, being in the healthcare field. But... Um, just to make whoever you're with feel comfortable, feel respected, feel safe. Right. So small, but so big at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we really just want to send an incredible thank you. Yes. Thank you so much. It's been so educational for us. We really appreciate it. And we know it's quite busy at the moment <laughs> with everything going on, but we really appreciate it. And this and that brings us to the end of our episode and the first in our collaborative series with Teach the Teacher. As a sneak peek, our next talk will be on the role of speech pathology in transgender and gender diverse health. Once again, we'd like to thank everyone for listening and we hope you enjoyed the experience.